U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and in this corner, in the white, red, and blue trunks, Stephen the XO. Hey there, everyone. How's it going? So we're still on Ironclad, surprisingly enough. One episode has become three at this point? Yeah. Maybe even four? Let's... We're just going to have to see how much of it we can get through before uh, before the end of this one. We're going to try to get it into just three and then getting into the battles. But we'll uh, we'll have to wait and see, see how this goes. Who knew new technological innovations actually involved having, you know, to discuss new technological innovations? So where we left off, last thing we discussed were the armaments positioning of armaments, the development of the armaments, and the tactics. So now we're going to go into the armor and construction of these vessels. And then the propulsion, and then a breakdown of the fleets that had them, and things of that nature, and then that should be it. So are you ready to get underway? Let's cast off. All right. So... The first ironclads, of course, were actually built with wooden hulls. And then iron was wrapped around them to protect them. Were they worried about uh, the buoyancy of iron? Or were they just worried about, like, uh, the cost of building a ship entirely out of iron? It was probably cost prohibitive, and they just didn't know how to make a boat out of iron without it sinking yet. They designs and technology was still being developed at this time. So the easiest way to do armor up with iron would be to use iron hull platings instead of just making everything out of iron. Makes sense. Yeah. And this was true through into the 1870s. So, of course, using wrought iron construction for warships, you know, this had a lot of advantages for, you know, just engineering of the hull, period. But, you know, unarmored iron had many militarily disadvantages and technical problems. And this is what kept the wooden hulls in you, as, you know, I said when we were answering your question. Especially for, you know, those warships that needed to go a very long distance. Now, these boats had been proposed for military use in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. And all, uh, and of course, France, Britain, and the U.S. had all experimented with them with, you know, unarmored gunboats and frigates. But the Iron Hall frigate was abandoned by the end of the 40s because they found that they were more vulnerable to solid shot. Iron was actually more brittle than wood. And iron frames were more likely to collapse than wood frames. Huh. So the unarmored iron warship hulls meant that the iron was only adopted as materials for battleships for armor protection. And this gave naval architects advantages. It allowed larger ships and more flexible designs. For instance, watertight bulkheads. That's very, very important. The warrior was built of iron, and she was longer and faster than the wooden hulled galore. Iron could be produced to order and used immediately 
Whereas, you know, wood had to be processed and then seasoned before it could be used. Then there was also the just huge amount of wood required to build said ship. And the falling cost of iron, this made the iron hulls more and more cost effective. The main reason the French used wooden hulls was because the French industry just couldn't supply enough iron. And Britain also used a lot of wooden hulled ironclads because they had already bought the wood. <laughs> so they were like, yeah, we're going to use it. We bought it. We got to use it. In for a pence, in for a pound. Yeah. And wooden hulls also continue to be used for long range and, you know, smaller ironclads because iron hulls suffered fouling a lot quicker by, you know, marine life, meaning this would slow the ships down. So this was, you know, manageable for a European fleet close to dry docks, but for the long range ships going from, you know, let's say Britain to South America or Norfolk to the Mediterranean or Norfolk to the Mediterranean. Yep. So the solution was to sheath the iron hull in wood and then in copper. And this was very expensive, very labor inducive. So, you know, this was like, instead of doing all this, let's just keep it wood. So after 72, that's when steel started to be introduced for construction. And of course, compared to iron, steel allowed for greater strength and lower weight. Now, for those of uh, our listeners and any uh, officers on the podcast who aren't familiar with metallurgy, uh, steel is a mix, kind of like bronze, right? Yes, steel is a mixture of different metals and different alloys. And it's put together by a process that I don't know because I am not a steel worker, but it is... It's, it provides for a stronger and lighter metal to build with than a pure metal like iron. And, you know, copper is very soft and malleable, so it doesn't work well. So the French Navy actually leads the way with the use of steel. The first keels were laid down in 1873 and launched in 1876. This was on the redutable. But of course, she had wrought iron armor plates instead of steel for some reason. Probably because of, you know, what they knew already. Yeah. They weren't they weren't really ready to embrace the new technology yet. Now, Britain would actually lead the world in steel production at this time. But it was like, look at all the steel. No, we're not using it on a warships because that's weird. What were they using it on? They were probably using it on like buildings and pots and pans so housewives can hit their guys in the above, <laughs> upside the head. You know, things of that nature. Weapons, more than likely. But they were like, I don't know about ships. Not yet. But of course, you know, steel production in this age would also be full of impurities 
imperfections just because they're still getting the formula down right. So that might be a reason. But the first all-steel warships built by the Royal Navy were the Iris and Mercury, which were laid down in 75 and 76, respectively. And they were dispatch vessels, so like little courier ships. Oh, that's cool. So the Iron Belt ships used wood as part of their protection scheme as well. Like the HMS Warrior was protected by four and a half inches of wrought iron, and it was this was backed by 15 inches of teak, which at this time, well, which is the strongest shipbuilding wood, period. The, this wood played two major roles. A, it prevented spalling, and it also prevented the shock of a hit damaging the structure of the ship. And then later, the wood and iron were combined in a type of sandwich armor, which was used like on the HMS Inflexible. Come on, I know you want to ask it. Uh, okay, was it actually inflexible or did it have a good bit of a bend? Oh, that's not what I thought you wanted to ask. Well, okay, I was assuming the sandwich was wood, steel, wood. I figured you could be asking what spalling is. Well, that is, uh, you know, a volleyball that is trapped on a desert island with another famous actor. Wilson wasn't the only famous volleyball. No, no, spalling is when the shot goes through your material and it splinters off, causing shrapnel. Oh, I thought we just called that wood splintering. No, that's, it's called spalling. I mean, any, it, it also, you know, covers corrosion, weathering, cativation, you know, oh, okay. All that. So, but it's all—it's all called spalling. It's all inclusive, yes. not just combat-related, right? But yes, the inflexible was flexible because you know it had to be flexible, so it could not break apart on waves. All boats are flexible, like up to a certain, <laughs> a certain extent. You want it to bend, not to snap. Exactly. So, of course, steel is also a obvious material for armor, and it was tested in the 60s. But, again, because of the process of making it at this time, it was too brittle. And it was pretty much just disintegrated when it was struck by shells. It became practical to use when they found a way to fuse steel into wrought iron, giving, giving it a form of compound armor and this was used by the british from the late 1870s first for the turret armor and then for all armor in 1882 so when you say compound armor do you mean they literally just slapped steel on top of the iron as another layer of metal or like they were throwing it on patchwork to reinforce so this was a non-alloyed attempt to combine the benefits of both the wrought iron and steel. So they would put one on top of the other. Okay. So it's like giving your car a new coat of paint. But in this case, you're giving a warship a whole new coat of armor. Mm-hmm. Now, when these inventions were made, the French and German navies... They were like, we're using that and we're using that now. We like that and we're not, we're not taking no for an answer. <laughs> I'll take your entire stock. Shut up and take my money. Yeah. 
So the first Ironclads to have all steel armor were two ships of the Dulio class, and they were laid down in 1873. Now, the armor wasn't purchased until 1877, but they did purchase it from France. And then the French Navy decided in 1880 to adopt compound armor for its fleet. But of course, they were like, it, there's not a lot of it, so what are we going to do? Well, I guess we're just going to use steel. And Britain, they used compound armor until 1889. Wow. So, the ultimate ironclad armor that was used was case-hardened nickel steel. This was in 1890, and the U.S. Navy is the one that did this. They were testing steel armor that was hardened by the Harvey process, and they found it very superior to compound armor. And the Harvey process was just the front surfaces of the plates being case-hardened. So... For a number of years, the Harvey Steel was state-of-the-art. It was produced in the U.S., France, Germany, Britain, Austria, and in Italy. And in 1894, the German firm named Krupp, they started tinkering with gas cementing. And this just made the steel armor even harder. And that's what the Germans started to use. They laid down a ship in 1895 called the Kaiser Friedrich III, and this was the first ship to benefit from the new Krupp armor. And, of course, a new type of protection comes out. It is very quickly adopted by a lot of other parties. Oh, Krupp wasn't able to keep it uh, proprietary, so to speak, and uh, in-house? Oh, there's spies everywhere, man. Gotta get that Krabby Patty formula somehow. Oh, they, if it comes out, somebody else immediately steals it. So by about 1901, almost all new battleships used Krupp armor, except for the U.S. They continued to use Harvey armor about, you know, till about 1920 or 1910. Yeah, till about 1910. So 15 inches of wrought iron was equal to about 12 inches of either plain steel or compound iron and steel armor. And 7.75 inches of Harvey armor was equal to 15 inches of wrought iron. And 5.75 inches of Krupp armor was equal to 15 inches of wrought iron. Holy crap. Yeah. So... We're going to move on to propulsion. So the first ocean-going ironclads had masts, like you found out last time, and we're like, what? It just sounds like uh, something that would be unnecessary at this point. Yeah, but, you know, they needed to have that secondary propulsion system. But, you know, these features did eventually fade out, but only very slowly. They were not giving up on these on these sails. Because, you know, early steam engines were not very efficient. And the wooden steam fleet of the Royal Navy could only carry five to nine days of coal. 
Ooh. And, you know, this was pretty much very similar all across the board. The Warrior had two design features, which was pretty much just a hybrid propulsion. She had retractable screws to reduce drag while she's under sail power, and a telescopic funnel, which could be folded down to the deck level, to also reduce drag. What's the funnel for? Water intake? You know, to... smoke. When the engine's going, smoke comes out of the smokestack or it fills up the engine Oh, room. okay, okay. So the funnel is smokestack. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, unless you want to breathe that stuff. No, I'm good. I'm asthmatic. That's a terrible idea. Yeah, I agree with you. Plus, you know, black lung, ugh. <laughs> now, the ships that were designed for coastal warfare, so more brown water operations, like the Monitor, they didn't have any mass. From the beginning, they were not included in the design at all because, you know, they were close to refueling stations at all times. We're, we're going all in on the coal. Yeah. Now, in 1869, the first ocean-going ironclad that didn't have masts was created. And this was from the British. This was the HMS Devastation. Uh, it devastated the sail. Her main role for combat was in the English Channel and European waters around there. And her coal supplies gave her enough range to go across the Atlantic. But, you know, she wouldn't have very much endurance to continue operating after crossing the Atlantic. Right. Now, of course, she was the exception to the rule, of course, because most ironclads still had their masts. And it was only really the Italian Navy during this time that were pretty much just massless, but they also only did short-range operations to the Adriatic, so they really didn't need them, just like the Monitor. Now, of course, during the 1860s, steam engines were improved with the adoption of a double-expansion steam engine, which used 30 to 40% less coal than earlier models. So, better gas mileage for lack of a better term. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, they were able to refine the process of the steam engine design to be able to make better use of the energy to create propulsion, and so they were losing, losing less of that energy. All right. So the Royal Navy, they decided to switch to the double expansion engine in 1871, and then by 1875, the use of this engine was pretty much well widespread. But this still did not kill the mast. Seriously? Yeah. Now, they... So, I mean, of course, a steam-only fleet would require a network of coaling stations worldwide. So this, you know, helped keep the masts attached to decks. Right, right. And these coaling stations would also have to be fortified, which is a huge expense because they did not need their coaling stations falling into enemy hands. Mm -hmm. And of course, during this time, boilers and were still not very reliable. Reliable. Yeah, exactly. And so having the sail backup is still, you're going to want it if your boiler breaks down. Now, if it explodes, then you don't need them anyway because your boat is gone. And, of course, you know, 
the 30 to 40% less coal used with the double expansion steam engine. Well, practice versus theory, you know, practice isn't as good as theory. Uh, um, agree to disagree there? How so? I mean, if it works in practice, wouldn't it work? Wouldn't that be a lot more valuable than something that works in theory? That's what I'm saying. It didn't work very well in practice. Oh, oh as it okay. Did in I misunderstood you. That's okay. You can still be my ex. Aw, thanks. <laughs> so during the 1870s, a distinction begins to grow between first class ironclad and cruising ironclads. So battleships and cruisers. The demands on the first-class ironclads for very heavy armor and armament means that they needed to increase displacement. The more he the more weight you put on it, the more it displaces. Yeah. This also reduced speed under sails, and the fashion for turrets and barbets made a sailing rig increasingly inconvenient. The HMS Inflexible was commissioned in 1881 this was the last british battleship to carry masts and everybody was like you know what those masts they were a mistake <laughs> we were feeling nostalgic and it was a terrible idea guys yeah the 1880s were pretty much the end of sailing rigs on ironclad battleships now on the cruisers or cruising ironclads, the sails stayed on for a lot longer. It pretty much took until 1881 for the Royal Navy to lay down a long-range armored cruiser capable of, you know, chasing and catching pirates or commerce raiders. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the HMS Warspite was completed in 1888. But... Rigged warships, or sailing rigged warships, were still in service in the early years of the 20th century. Just older ships that uh, hadn't been drummed out. Or sunk. <laughs> I mean, if there weren't any major wars, not much risk of being sunk, I suppose, aside from accidents at sea. Well, there was always small wars, small skirmishes. We've been learning that. Th this is true. This is true. So the final evolution in ironclad propulsion was the adoption of what was called a triple expansion steam engine and this was first adopted in the hms sans parel which was laid down in 85 and commissioned in 91 many ships also used a forced drought to get additional power from their engines and this system was used widely until the introduction of the steam turbine which happened in the middle of the first decade of the 20th century. Hmm. So we're going to jump over to the navies that used them. Now, while they were in a lot of navies worldwide, because once they saw the U.S. doing it, they were like, we want that stuff. <laughs> there were actually not very many battles that involved them. Most European nations, they tended to settle their differences on land, and the Royal Navy struggled to maintain a deterrent, you know, policy with France. 
while providing suitable protection to its commerce and colonial outposts around the world. Ironclads for the British Navy was pretty much just used to defend the British Isles. And then, secondly, they were used for projecting power abroad. Yeah. But, yeah, this was, that was more secondary. Between the logistics and all the other factors, easier to keep them close to home. And by having them close to home, yeah. even more of a deterrent for seaborne invaders. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the UK, they possess the largest navy in the world for the entirety of the ironclad period, as they have up till this point pretty much forever. But they were also the second to adopt ironclad warships. The British did not participate in any major wars during the ironclad period, so they really didn't use them that much. They were pretty much just, look what we got, don't mess with us. <laughs> the French Navy built the first ironclad. They, to try to gain, you know, strategic advantage over the British, but, you know, the British, they are seagoing peoples. So they're on, they're constantly outbuilt by the British. So it didn't work. Russia was also in the ironclad gang. And they generally, you know, sent spies in, got copies of the plans and made British and French designs. But they did have real innovations like the first real armored cruiser. Really? Yeah. And they also had a set of remarkably badly designed circular battleships. Wait, we're talking full on, you know, like theme park bumper boats, circular. Yeah, <laughs> they were circles. Please, please tell me they had, you know, the 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 screw, the prop set up near the front so you could just kind of turn it and, you know, even have the boat kind of just go in a circle without having to actually move around. No, the schematic I'm looking at, it has six screws all on the rear <laughs> with a rudder between them. <laughs> oh, I mean, we. I love to laugh at these designs, but I also love to see these designs that you know... You know the engineers got together, they broke open whatever spirit of choice, this being Russia, probably vodka, and just like, guys, probably. Guys, what if, what if we made it a circle? Okay, we'll stick, we'll stick guns all around it. You can't be surrounded if you're a circle. Can't be surrounded if you have a 360 degree firing arc. Wait, 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 what, what about, this is meant to be sailing. How is it going to cut through the waves? It's fine. It's fine. We'll put six props on it, okay? We'll have enough drive to push through the waves. Screw Mother Nature. It got six and a half knots. Oh, well, golly. Golly, a jogger could keep up with that. <laughs> if they could walk on water. <laughs> Next, you're going to tell me the thing has terrible gas mileage, coal mileage. How many nautical miles to the, six, to the ton? 680 nautical mile range. Oh, huh. <laughs> wait, that that's round trip, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's full range from fill up to fill up. Huh? Oh, okay. So you like, unless you want to play it 
dangerous. You can't get more than 300 miles away from a port. Uh, let's see what... F 480 nautical miles to... Well, and, that, and that's under ideal conditions, right? The 640? Yes. Yeah, hence why I'm saying 300, unless you want to be a little dangerous. So, 480 nautical miles is 552 miles. Oh, I thought you said 680. Oh, this is even worse. No, I said 480, I think. No, yeah, it's 480. That's terrible. Its length and beam were 101 feet. It was a circle, remember? <laughs> How many of these were built? I think it was two, because it was a set of circular battleships. <laughs> so I think it was two. <laughs> I mean, But this one that I'm looking at, was in service from 1874 to 1903. Oh, no. One was completed, and then the other one was scrapped. Okay, so they realized they had a dud immediately. Yeah. Okay. Still, 1874 to 1903, that's a good surface life. That was quite a long time. I mean, they got almost 30 years out of it. It cost 2.8 million rubles, not including the armament. Wow, this is just... Okay. Uh, very amusing to look at. <sighs> Have you seen the picture? No. Any pictures? All right, here's a scale model that I'm sending to chat right now. At least I'm trying to. There we go. There's a scale model of it. It's <laughs> adorable. It it's, got little, it's got little guns halfway up the smokestacks on little gangplanks. If anybody wants to see what we're looking at, look up the Novgorod. The no look up the Novgorod. It it literally looks like a bumper what, boat you boat would see at a theme name. park. Just with guns on it. <laughs> oh, and oh, why would they set up the smokestacks in that way? It, like, if your mindset is, oh, you know, 360 turret firing arc practically, set up those smokestacks closer to the, you know, a uh, superstructure, the bridge, call it what you want. Because those smokestacks are obstructing its uh, 90 degree and 270 degree firing arc. I'm not even sure if the barrels can get past it, if that's actually constructed right. Oh, the barrels can get past it, yeah. The barrels can go 360 degrees. They can't shoot 360 degrees. Not safely. <laughs> but yeah, uh, if you guys want to see what we're looking at, look up the... Russian monitor, Novgorod, N-O-V-G-O-R-O-D, and have a good laugh. We sure have. <laughs> now, the Russian Navy did pioneer the widespread use of torpedo boats. Okay. Mainly because of the superior number and quality of ironclads used by the Turkish Navy. So once again, I'm going to ask, are we actually on torpedoes yet? Yes and no. They were called torpedoes. Some of them were still mines. So the U.S. Navy had about 50 coastal ironclads of the Monitor type at the end of the Civil War. And by the 1870s, most of these were pretty much just sitting in reserve. Pretty much leaving the U.S. without a ironclad fleet. Oof. 
In the 1870s, five large monitors were ordered, and the limitations of the monitor pretty much prevented the U.S. from projecting powers overseas until about the 1890s. And of course, because of this, even Spain or, you know, a Latin America would be able to destroy the U.S. Navy. Now, in the 1890s, saw the beginnings of what became the Great White Fleet. This was modern pre-dreadnoughts and armored cruisers built in the 1890s, which defeated the Spanish fleet in the Spanish-American War of 1898, which we will get to. And this started a new era of naval warfare. It seems that the U.S. does that a lot. <laughs> Well, we do like to uh, throw hands sometimes. Yes. The ironclads were also widely used in South America. And Spain and Peru was able to deploy two ironclads based on American designs. Okay. Ironclads were also used in the IJN, or Imperial Japanese Navy. And, you know, had decisive roles in different battles in the 1869s. So there is no clearly defined end to the ironclads because the transition from wood hulls to all metal hulls. So they pretty much continue to be used in World War One. Oh, so dreadnoughts were effectively just ironclads with the kinks worked out. Yeah. Battleships and armored cruisers just replaced the term ironclad. They're still ironclads. They're just renamed and massively updated. They were pretty much just updated and updated and updated until they were not recognized as the old ironclads and just called battleship cruisers, stuff like that. So that, my friend is the Ironclads. Well, we managed to wrap it up in three episodes out of the expected one. We did. We did. How are you feeling about the Ironclads now that you've learned so much about well, them? Well, um, I'll be honest. I was thinking there were going to be a lot more designs akin to the uh, Novgorod. Uh, but these were more practical, considering they were literally learning as they were making these, than I expected. Yeah. It made a pretty throughout the design it was pretty much logical except for roundy roundy hey hey roundy roundy was a beautiful boy roundy roundy was a frisbee on water <laughs> all right my friends well we're going to end it here and next time, we're going to be on the Battles of the Civil War. So, Exo, is there anything you would like to say before we pull back into port? Well, uh, first of all, we do have a Discord server now. You guys can find the link to that in the show notes. Both the yes. captain and myself trawl through from time to time. We enjoy sharing funny yes. memes. We enjoy sharing, you know, ha-ha funny Navy stuff. And getting to know you guys. Yes. We also, as always, have a Twitter. Uh, even if... this Will the site still be around by the time this episode releases? You never know. We'll have to 
wait and find out but we could still give out the information and if it collapses by then everybody will know that already anyway. all right well assuming it's still around you can tweet at us at usn history pod yes uh but full disclosure we are not blue checkmark verified and we never will be because there's no reason to pay for that bs but something that definitely will still be around by the time this episode drops is gmail and you can email yes. us at the U.S. Navy History Pod. No. He's shaking his head no, folks. USN History nope. Podcast? No. I was good about this. <laughs> There's no the at the no. beginning. U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. There you go. Until Elon buys that, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's out $56 billion right now. I think Google's worth a little more than that. I don't think he cares. <laughs> uh, Elon, please do not buy us. Or do we want him to? <laughs> then we can retire. <laughs> uh, st- starting bid $56 million. We'll cut you a deal. Yes. Uh, let's see. We still have the ship store that is back afloat. And there's a new design up there. There is. Your design that you requested. There is. Ship happens, because ship certainly happens in the U.S. Navy history. And the Russian naval history, apparently, after this episode. Just circles. <laughs> it's so, it's so hilarious. Uh, <laughs> finally, uh, we would love for you guys to leave, you know, a rating. It helps other folks find this podcast. And even better, we'd love to hear a review from you guys. What we could do better. What we're doing well. You know, and if you'd like, we can even read it on air. But with that, we wish you fair winds and following seas. See you next time, guys. <laughs> All right. Time to bring back the Novgorod. The absolute pinnacle of naval designs. Captain, join me. Let's do it. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Departing.